Greetings, my fellow interpreters, translators, colleagues, and friends. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in for another great episode of the Chinese Language Division podcast. Today, I have for you a very special guest, Professor Holly Mickelson. Yay! Professor Mickelson's work over the past decades has shaped the landscape of court interpreting and the court interpreting training. And today, we get the rare opportunity to sit down with her to pick her brain a little bit to see how she feels and the things that she has seen over the years about court interpreting. How was it like back then, and what it is like today? So, without further ado. Hi, Professor Mickelson. Thank you so much for coming to the show. I was so thrilled when you said yes. So,、uh, <laughs> so thank you once again for、You're、making. You're very welcome.、Time. Starting off, a personal curiosity question. A lot of us,、um, you know, who have taken some interpreter training classes, I'm sure they all have heard of the book Asable. If they have not already read it、uh, thoroughly, so I really <laughs> just want to know what made you decide to write a book like that. Well, I saw the need for practical materials to help people learn how to do, not just read about court interpreting, but practice doing it and approaching it in a more systematic way than had been done in the past. And I graduated from what was then the Monterey Institute, now Middlebury, back in the seventies, and the approach there had been. For conference interpreting, right? But right. as a Spanish English interpreter, I could not be a conference interpreter because at the time, I think this is still true of the European languages. You have to have your native language plus at least two other passive languages, and I didn't have strong enough French to be able to do that. So I wanted to focus on just Spanish and English, and what was available locally. Was working in the courts and administrative hearings. Just as I graduated, a new law was passed in California allowing farm workers to organize unions. So there were a lot of hearings about labor union activity and labor relations in general. And that was how I got my、um, <laughs> trial by fire, having just graduated and being thrown into these legal proceedings. A lot of the lawyers were all—they were bilingual, so they were correcting me when I didn't understand the Spanish that was spoken by the farm workers, because my Spanish had been learned in school and was a much formal, more formal,、um, higher register Spanish. I hadn't been exposed to the language of ordinary working people, especially farm workers. So I had a lot to learn, and I also needed to learn a lot about working in a legal environment because of the code of ethics. It is very strict, and the so-called verbatim requirement was in place. At that time, there was a lot less understanding of what the implications of that were. They literally thought that interpreters could interpret word for word. So these bilingual attorneys were expecting me to interpret exactly the way the people spoke, with all of the pauses and self-corrections and hums and hems and haws. 
And that was completely new to me because in traditional consecutive interpreting, we had been taught that you usually condense the message and present it in a more succinct way. Right. And that was what I started out doing. And then I kept being corrected by them. I observed another interpreter and suddenly the light bulb went off. I realized what they meant, that you have to interpret exactly the same way the person speaks, not the way you think they ought to speak to be formal. So I started, um, I was already teaching as an adjunct at Monterey. Um, and I started introducing the students to court proceedings as part of their interpreting classes. And I collected materials from workshops that I took from other court interpreters and started writing my own. Mostly they were dialogues for consecutive interpreting of testimony. And so I wrote these scripts and I also collected legal documents for site translation. And um, I, started writing scripts for the court proceedings in which um, the judge is speaking in a monologue and they have to be interpreted simultaneously for the, the defendant. So I started developing all these things for use in my classes. And after the classes were over, people kept asking me, could I have another copy of that? I lost my materials. Now I'm studying for an exam. Could I have a copy? And Others were saying, I've been asked to teach now that I know what I'm doing, and I wonder if I could use all your materials to teach my classes. My husband persuaded me that I should be selling these things instead of just giving them away. And he worked as a technical writer, so he was already involved in publishing from a certain point of view. And he knew all about desktop publishing, and he helped me format the materials and we recorded them in a very amateurish way. The, the earliest recordings you can hear all kinds of background noise and things. Um, but we did, at first it was a three ring binder. And then when we were mailing them to people, we found that the binders were falling apart. So we turned them into a bound book and it all took off from there. <laughs> Thank you so much for all that you have done. That really is just a, a framework of court interpreting trainings. I know I have benefited a whole lot from that. So that is you, very gratifying. Thank you. <laughs> without you taking that step or with uh, your husband's encouragement, I'm sure we wouldn't have had something like that today. So, um, wow. You mentioned it was when you first finished Middlebury and then you started to interpret for these farm workers. That must have been, what, 30, 40 years ago? Yes. What was the court interpreting like then versus uh, the changes that you have witnessed that we're seeing today? Well, in a way, I was lucky. In a way, I was not lucky. Um, I was lucky because there were no standards at all. I was lucky that I had a chance to start working in that and learn by doing so that when the first certifications came along, California started certifying interpreters in about 1978. And then the federal courts started certifying interpreters right around that same time. By the time I took 
those first exams, I was quite experienced. I'd been interpreting for two or three years already. And I still think that those exams were not as difficult as they are now. And standards in general were not as high as they are now. So I got an opportunity to get my foot in the door even when I wasn't as confident as I should have been. Uh, on the other hand, we didn't have good working conditions at all. The pay was low and there was this expectation that you were just a machine. So we did trials alone, eight solid hours in court, just interpreting. And so by the end of the day, I'd be hoarse and I wouldn't be able to think straight. And I could hear myself starting to make mistakes. And I could tell that I was losing my proficiency, my acuity. And I didn't dare ask for breaks because it just wasn't done. Fortunately, courtrooms do take a lot of breaks because the court reporter would need to change their paper or people would need a bathroom break or they would want to confer with their client, although they usually did that through an interpreter too. Um, so there were breaks, but it still was exhausting. And if anyone, if an interpreter had asked to have team interpreting or to have frequent breaks, they would have been kicked out of the courtroom and they would have just hired someone else. <laughs> so we were working under very primitive circumstances. And I think the profession was making things up as it went along because interpreters were fairly rare in courtrooms before the late 70s. I think the civil rights movement contributed a lot to language rights in general and to the provision of court interpreters where they hadn't been provided before. And so it was brand new and everybody was learning. So I, I think I got a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise, but I also had to learn the hard way about some of the requirements that should be in place for working conditions that in most places are in place now or um, should be. Yeah, so I think we are really the lucky ones now that um, the pains and sufferings have been <laughs> endured <laughs> by <laughs> the previous generations uh, interpreters like yourself. So and you in a way you actually advocated for the right uh, or the appropriate working conditions. So we now can work in the courtrooms with proper breaks and with uh, just generally people are educated about how mm -hmm. important we are in the courtroom and how much of an integral part we are to the whole legal process. Well, I can't claim credit for that. I think it was the professional associations of interpreters that really began um, writing position papers and speaking at bar associations and developing materials to train judges and attorneys about how important it is to learn to work effectively with interpreters. And I was part of that, but I certainly didn't, I wasn't a spearhead because I was pretty shy and I didn't dare speak up to a judge on my own. But in the, under the auspices of a professional association, I felt that that could be done. And I think they really helped a lot and even had an impact on legislation as it was written later on. 
Oh, indeed, the strength is in the bunch, uh, one united front. Yeah. One interesting observation that I have had, I know we have these very strict ethics standards that we have to follow. And I understand that the rationale is to ensure we interpret things word for word so the client or the, the litigants or the attorneys can figure out the problems or figure out the understanding issues on their own without us being in the middle, giving our subject. Objective uh, opinion mm -hmm. of what is being said. However, I do feel that there are things that go way beyond the language barrier. Uh, and mm -hmm. one example that I want to share is that I realize people, um, well, my language pair is Mandarin and uh, English, of course. So most of my clients are from mainland China. And then when they are in trouble with the law, socially and culturally, their general attitude is to submit to authority. I think that's mm -hmm. just how people are brought up. That's the, the social environment. And then they have this notion of uh, resistance means harsher punishment. So when they are going to the arraignment, they generally tend to say, yes, I did it. They don't really know that there is a chance for them to fight their case. And sometimes out of curiosities, I know even though I'm not really allowed to, I do get curious and I ask them, why didn't you say, um, no, you didn't do it? And he said, well, I'm already brought here. If I say no, that means I'm resisting. That means, um, you know, I'm going to get harsher punishment. Uh, mm -hmm. So I just felt that, well, I did say everything that the judge said, to this person and still this person made a choice to go with yes I did it all um, with the thought that he is being cooperative he is being mm -hmm. um, owning up to the mistake even though he may not be the person who's behind this whole thing he still wanted to just admit it um, in hope of more lenient um, sentence or whatnot the punishment may be. So I think in that sense, language itself, no matter how much we're sticking to the original or to the source language, it doesn't really give us that whole equal access in a way mm -hmm. to people because it's there's so much more than language uh, at yes. play. It, you cannot extricate culture from language and the kinds of attitudes you're talking about are culturally ingrained in people. So when they go to a different country and they are involved in a legal system that is quite different from what they are used to from their home country, they don't behave in ways that we expect people to behave in our legal system. Um, uh, I've had the same experience with a lot of people who are not behaving in, in their best interests because of their attitudes and their expectations. So the rules of ethics are very strict. And one reason for that, I think, is that they originally were written by lawyers. Lawyers feel threatened by anyone who is um, between them and their client because whether they know the language or not, they want to control things. And there's this third person in the middle of the relationship, the interpreter, and they fear that the interpreter is going to distort things in a way that affects their case. So they don't trust interpreters to use good judgment 
And that's why they say, don't think, just translate, which is absurd. You can't translate or interpret without thinking. They fear the impact that interpreters might have if they have too much autonomy. So I think our codes of ethics are strict, partly because they're coming from the point of view of attorneys, but also because we work in an adversarial system. And we have to be extremely careful not to favor one side or the other. And with language, that can be very tricky and very subjective. The way you interpret an ambiguity could help one side or help or hurt it. And you don't intend to do that, but there's, you, there's no way you can retain the ambiguity. You have to go one way or the other in many cases. So you're, you're caught in the middle, no matter what you do, one side or the other is going to think that you uh, swayed the jury against them or, or something like that. So we're caught in the middle. And I think the biggest problem is that the legal profession in general doesn't understand language issues and cultural issues. And they, they don't realize how difficult it is to thread that thin line between um, by a, between interpreting accurately and interpreting in a way that would skew the evidence one way or another. This actually reminds me of an example. It doesn't have much to do with interpreting. It's about people from outside of the industry trying to set the standard for the particular yes. industry that they aren't a part of. Um, so I remember <laughs> um, Mark Zuckerberg for his Senate hearing. He said, oh, we don't mind supervision. We don't mind uh, regulation, but just not from you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I guess <laughs> implying that those people don't really know what this industry is all about. One last question before I let you go. Court interpreting is like driving um, like a manual car and then conference interpreting is like driving like auto transmission <laughs> car like yes they're all driving <laughs> but they're just engineered differently mm-hmm. um and then i i've known some really good interpreters who haven't been working in the court interpreting settings and then they feel like they want to add that to their credentials so mm-hmm. i wonder um if you have any advice for um, our colleagues who are trying to maybe get um get certified as a court interpreter mm-hmm. Well, one thing I would suggest all interpreters should go and observe in court when they're preparing for their exams to see what it's really like. Even though the exams are very unrealistic, they're not, um, they're a simulation and there are a lot of elements of actual interpreting that are not present in the exam. But the way I observed that one interpreter and I suddenly realized what they meant by verbatim interpretation. I think that if a conference interpreter goes and observes a very competent, qualified court interpreter in their language combination, they'll see the difference. And they will realize it's not that rigid word for word requirement, which makes no sense. It's that you need to retain every element of meaning, including nonverbal language. And once they realize that they can practice with that in mind and i think it becomes easier 
Another problem is that with court proceedings, all of the interpreting that is done simultaneously is out of English. Mm. And speakers of English, they're at a disadvantage because they don't interpret simultaneously into their A language, they're interpreting into their B language. But there's no point in practicing interpreting into English in the simultaneous mode because it's just not going to be done. But in the consecutive mode, yes. And they, the other thing they need to do is learn the colloquial speech of the inhabitants of this country as they speak, even if it's not correct, Chinese or French or whatever the language is. Um, it's the everyday language of working people. And they have to know that language and be able to use it. They also have to learn how cops speak <laughs> and how expert witnesses speak. And a, a lot of times people are not trained speakers. They don't handle themselves very well in a public speaking setting, but they're there and you have to interpret for them. Professor Mickelson, I just want to thank you one more time for coming to the show and sharing with us all of the insights. I personally find it very empowering and very eye-opening. And I am sure our listeners would all agree with me. As we approach the end of this episode, on behalf of the Chinese Language Division of the ATA, I would like to wish everybody a happy and prosperous 2022. And to my Chinese colleagues, 祝大家虎年行大运, 虎虎生威, 如虎天意. Till next time.